people. Let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter 7. I was supposed to begin the parables of Luke. It was even on the website. I was ready to go. And God changed directions and wouldn't let me out of chapter 7. And maybe it's because a few people need to hear uh, what we're going to read and what I'm going to say. So this is a reading from Luke 7, 18 to 28. Then the disciples of John reported to him concerning all these things. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to Jesus, saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? When the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? And that very hour he cured many of infirmities, afflictions, and evil spirits, and to many blind he gave sight. Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things you have seen and heard, that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. When the messengers of John had departed, he began to speak to the multitudes concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who are gorgeously appareled and live in luxury are in king's courts. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. For I say to you, among those born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. But he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. This is God's word. So I have four kids. Amanda's 30, Mike's 28, Leah's 24, Carly's a senior, she's 17. And yes, I know all their birthdays. It might take me a while, but I know all their birthdays. Uh, they are great kids. They haven't caused me a lick of trouble. I love them all. And uh, to steal a line from Les Mis, the movie, I've stolen happiness the last 30 years by them being in my home. But at one point or another, each and every one of them has asked me this question, Dad, do you ever doubt? And what they're asking is, and it comes from their experience, you know, they're, they're raised in a, in a house of faith, Dad, do you ever doubt the Bible's true, or Jesus really rose from the dead, or that when we die, we'll really wake up in heaven? And it's led to wonderful conversations, and sometimes it goes on for hours, and you know, one of the things I always share with them is, guys, you know, 98% of the time I could stand on railroad tracks and get run over by a train full of the conviction that I know that I'll wake up on the other side. But then there's 2% of the time where I feel like a defensive end has come around my blind side and just whacked me with doubt. It just comes over me like a wet blanket, like a dark cloud. Um, I realized as we've had these conversations that my kids asked the conversation, Ask the question because there's safety in the relationship. I'm their dad. I'm their pastor. There's, there, there's wonderful safety in that conversation. But I also realized no one in the congregation asked me that question. My friends, colleagues never asked the question. And um, the closest I've ever come is this woman who wrote to me. 
anonymous, of course. She said, even as a Christian, I sometimes think about the end of my life. Will I indeed be present with the Lord? Sometimes an overwhelming fear arises that at the end there will be nothing, simply blackness. No consciousness of time, space, or anything. Now, in my heart, I choose to believe Christ has prepared a place for me because that's what the Bible says, and I'm comforted by that truth 99.5% of the time. It's the other 0.5% of the time that I fear there is nothing after this life, and I feel horrible for having those thoughts. So I want to begin this morning by saying this, that no one should fear having those thoughts. No one should you know, feel ashamed or ever go through it alone, and here's why. Because I don't care what you've ever heard or what you've ever read, doubt is a part of the Christian journey. It's a part of faith. Now, I'm not talking about doubting every day or colossal doubt. I'm talking about 2%, 0.5%. One of the reasons is, is that we are on a journey towards heaven. We are serving an invisible God. Um, the Bible never hides this, right? It doesn't hide this idea of doubt. Uh, many people in the Bible have been going through discouragement and difficulties and doubt at God. Moses uh, doubted God. He's leading millions of people through the wilderness, and he says, God, just take my life at one time. Elijah, sitting under the juniper tree, said the same thing. Both Jeremiah and Job cursed the womb that bore them. The Apostle Paul had to write 2 Corinthians about the God of all comfort because of all the things he had been through, the thorn in the flesh and the scourgings and such. John on the Isle of Patmos, and we can go on and on in the scriptures, this great cloud of witnesses, these folks who walked by faith, the substance of what they were hoping for, the evidence of what they couldn't see, all had these moments of doubt in their lives. C.S. Lewis, one of the great atheist conversions in history, said, now that I'm a Christian, I do not have moods in which the whole thing looks very improbable. You know, 0.5, 2%er. He said, but when I was an atheist, I had moods in which Christianity looked terribly probable. And he kind of opens the door to all these, you know, smart atheist guys out there, scientists telling us there's no God. And you know what the truth is? They're waking up every day doubting just like we are. They're looking at a universe and saying, oh my gosh, maybe there is a God. Max Lucado, who's uh, written over 20 books, Time Magazine called him America's Pastor. He said, sometimes in the dawn tinted pre-pulpit hours, the seeming absurdity of what I believe hits me. I can remember one Easter in particular. As I reviewed my sermon by the light of a lamp, the resurrection message felt mythic, more closely resembling an urban legend than gospel truth. Angels perched on cemetery rocks, burial clothing needed, then not. Soldiers scared stiff, a was dead, now walking Jesus. I half expected the Mad Hatter or the Seven Dwarfs to pop out of a hole at the turn of the page. A bit of a stretch, don't you think? This is a pastor. He said, I was struck by the fear that God isn't. The fear that why has no answer. The fear of a pathless life. The fear that status quo is as good as it gets. And anyone who believes otherwise probably invested in Juneau, Alaska, beachfront property. The chilling, quiet, horrifying shadows of aloneness in a valley that emerges and leads into a fog-covered curve. Billy Graham, in 50 years of ministry, has led countless people to Christ through television and live crusades. Was once asked, Mr. Graham, when you die, do you expect to go to heaven and hear these words, well done, thou good and faithful servant? To which he answered, I hope so. 
And the person said, well, Mr. Graham, you've assured millions that that's what's going to happen to them. What do you mean? I hope so. He said, I've never done it before. Martin Luther had a constant battle with doubt and depression. He said, for more than a week, Christ was wholly lost. I was shaken by desperation and blasphemy against God. This is a man who brought us the Reformation. Dwight Moody, Charles Spurgeon, Hannah White Smith, who actually wrote the book, The Christian's Secret to a Happy Life. Mother Teresa and probably most of us in this room have all gone through the valley of the shadow of doubt and unbelief. So a couple questions. Why do we doubt? And then the bigger question is, why are we so ashamed? Why, why are we f- afraid to speak it in public? Why do we push it to the back door? And I think in some regards, the church is responsible for this. I almost never blame the church. I love the church. Jesus walks among the church. But I think the church is to blame here because we've made faith so positive so much of the time, right? We show you all these cool testimony videos and we march people on stage. And, you know, it's part of faith, right? God is a redeeming God and there's these wonderful stories. All of our songs are so positive and faith-oriented that hardly do we ever, ever leave room for doubt and questions about the things that we believe. Um, one of the things we have to realize is doubt is a good thing. Now, I'm not talking about doubting what we believe. I'm talking about 2%, 0.5. Uh, just regular life. Doubt helps you survive, right? Doubt helps you when somebody says you need to invest in this mutual fund that's going to give you a 50% return next week. Or, you know, you need to buy property here or this timeshare or whatever. I mean, doubt is good for us a lot of the time, right? Um, P.T. Barnum is the father of modern-day advertising. I don't know if you know that. And he's quoted, it's a misquote, as saying, um, there's a sucker born every minute. Here's what he actually said. He said, I'll never work a day in my life because there's a sucker born every minute. And some real prideful people go, ha yeah, there's a sucker born every minute, uh, as if they weren't one. What P.T. Barnum was saying is, we're all a sucker for something. Everyone in this room... If we went to a noshing or a gathering, would tell some stupid story of something you bought or something you bought into, and we would laugh and all that because we're suckers for something. So doubt is a good thing sometimes. And doubt's a part of the journey. Uh, this morning, I want to talk about the 2%, the 0.5%. I realize some of you may be deeply discouraged, deeply depressed, deeply in doubt. And uh, I hope some of this can help you. So what I want to do is give you four reasons why we doubt, and then I actually want to give you the cure, and I hate using that word, but I want to give you more of a purpose, and then hopefully by the end, we'll have learned something. So why do we doubt? Why those of us who have given our life to Christ, and we come to church every Sunday, and we love God, why in the world would we doubt some of the time? Well, the first thing you have to understand is you are a finite human being. You're a finite human being who's serving an infinite, and get this, invisible God. You know, you've heard me say it many times that the more spiritual you become, the less you need of tangible things like beautiful cathedrals and lit candles and incense, right? Uh, God said this, am I only a God nearby, declares the Lord, and not a God far away, Jeremiah 23, 23? You know, we like to say Jesus is our homeboy, he's our friend, he's closer than a brother, and he is, he indwells us. But God said, hey, Jeremiah, get this, there are going to be days where I seem far away, because I'm the God who laid out the universe with the span of my hand. 
And there are, there are going to be days where you think you're the only one in relationship with me. And we're going to have to learn to navigate these days. This was Israel's greatest problem. Uh, last week I watched The Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston, still one of my favorite movies. And, you know, you get to that scene of the golden calf. Moses goes up on the mountain for 40 days and they start building this golden calf. And you think, oh my gosh, are these a bunch of idiots? I mean, they saw ten plagues, the greatest superpower in the world defeated. Pharaoh's army drowned it in the Red Sea. And they're making a golden calf. And what you begin to understand is they didn't worship the golden calf. They needed a physical representation of God. They needed something they could taste, touch, smell, and feel. So the golden calf was a way to worship Jehovah. I believe Adam was a far superior human being than all of us in this room. Do you know why? Because he's the only man that walked with God before the fall. The Bible said he was made in the image of God. He was a light bearer. I think the fall devastated everything, even our ability to relate to God. Uh, there's a wonderful app out there. It does cost five bucks. It's the 60 Minutes app. And uh, I don't have the time to sit around on a Sunday night and watch 60 Minutes. So I can go on my app anytime and watch the previous shows, and I get the whole catalog of their shows. Uh, one time there was a fascinating program about a teenage kid who would go to a carnival, and they would have a five-year calendar there, and you could point to any day in the last five years, and he'll tell you what he wore, uh, what the weather was that day, sports scores. I mean, you're watching this and you're thinking, okay, this is absolutely impossible. And a couple years later, they found out there's 30 people in the country that can do this. And uh, remember we were told once that we only use 10% of our brain? And I don't know if that's an urban legend or, or what happened to these people, but I think Adam had this capacity, right? Dude named all the animals, subdued the earth, you know. God, I think he just had a greater capacity than we do. And because we don't have this capacity, because we're finite, you know, we are forced intellectually to live in the tension of being finite and God being infinite. And that's a problem for people. Because people love certainty. And they love concrete answers. They don't like difficult questions. And some people, to relieve that tension, have come up with formulas. Now, if you're a Calvinist, I'm not against you, and uh, I read a lot of books by guys that are Reformed. I have no squabble with that. If you believe in election, I believe in election. What I am against is hyper-Calvinism. Uh, because I can live in the mystery of free will and election. I can believe Ephesians 1, and I can believe Jesus, who said, whosoever may come after me. I can live in that tension. I don't need to figure God out this side of heaven, because I have a lot of questions I want to ask him when I get there. Now, here's another one that kills me. Uh, when children die early, you know, do they go to heaven? And uh, I think the scriptures tell us they do, but we have to close the gap. So Catholics and some Protestants came up with the idea, let's baptize babies really quick. Because that will close the gap and release the tension and we'll know they went to heaven. Evangelicals who were more word-centered said, oh, no, 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 no. There's an age of accountability. Yeah, but where's that in the Bible? Now, if you just read the Bible, you'll be okay, right? Remember David when his son was dying? He was in sackcloth and ashes, and he was fasting and praying. And then the baby died, and he got up, and he said, hey, somebody make me a meal. And everybody around him saying, David, you know, you were just fasting and praying, and now you want a meal? He said, well, the ch while the child remained, I believed God. 
But now that he's died, I'm going on with my life. This is a paraphrase. And listen to these words. He said, one day, he goes, the child can't come to me, but one day I'll go to him. But instead, we come up with this age of accountability. And if we were God, we would have a verse in the Bible that says, every child that dies under 10 goes to heaven. Right. We'd rather have it that way. Chapter and verse. But can you imagine if it was written that way during the Crusades of the 11th century? Every kid under 10 would have been slaughtered because they could have said, look, right here in the Bible it says they're all going to go to heaven. So you see why God's mysterious? God wants to be sought. Because we're finite, we're spirit, soul, and body. Your spirit was born again of incorruptible seed, of the word of God. The problem is your soul is your mind, will, and emotions, and they go wacky at times, right? We get anxious, we suffer with doubt, depression, mood swings, all kinds of things. The body has physical infirmities. If a finite creature tries to know everything about the infinite God, it's like a kid digging a hole near the edge of the sea and then trying to put the whole ocean into that sea. You just can't do it. Paul said we're seeing through a glass dimly. I love what Pascal said. He said we will see too much in this life to deny God and too little to be 100% sure. But God has given us enough. Number two is obvious. We doubt because we're, we live in a fallen world. You know, our world is full of beauty. And uh, there's a wonder of creation. And you even look at human beings and you marvel at their creativity. You know, sometimes I sit in my house, it's snowing out. I lit a fire, drinking a cup of coffee. Life is grand. Look at the snow. God, you're amazing. Every snowflake's different. And, you know, you, I'm the apple of your eye. This is great. And I go to a concert and I, I look at this amazing um, orchestra, and I look at people made in the image of God, didn't create and all, and I think, wow, God, this is so affirming. And then three days later, I go downtown, all the snows turn black because of exhaust fumes, and I come out of the concert, and beggars are there, and people honking in traffic, and I get a text message, 30 people died in a school shooting, and all of a sudden, you're like, oh my gosh, what kind of world do we live in? Well, we live in a fallen world, where really, really bad things happen. And again, the Bible doesn't hide this. Adam and Eve's first kids, Cain and Abel. Cain kills Abel. You know, right out of the gate, it happens. The third reason why we doubt is that many Christians have unrealistic expectations about life and God. Some people have even gravitated towards a theology that if you're a Christian, you'll never get sick, nothing bad will ever happen to you, um, People buy into this kind of theology. Nothing can be farther from the truth. And we think if we serve God, bad things won't happen. So when something like 9-11 or what we just saw in Kenya, the massacre there or school shootings, we say, where's God? And we want that tension relieved. Couldn't God have done something about this? And the apostles live this way, right? One day they're walking with Jesus and there's a man who's blind. And they said, Master, who sinned that this man was born blind? Because in their theology, bad things can't happen. There had to be cause and effect. So who sinned? You know what Jesus said? Neither. Neither. But that God's glory may come upon this man to heal him. But he said neither. Now, Jesus wasn't being smart. He wasn't being flip. He was basically said, your mind is too small to understand a complex world with billions of people and how all these things are arranged. Just can't do it. Uh, in Luke 13, Jesus 
one of the few times in his ministry, commented on a current event where a tower of Siloam fell in Jerusalem and killed a bunch of people. He said, um, when the tower of Siloam fell and killed them, he, he said, do you think they were worse sinners than all the men who dwelt in Jerusalem? Again, the thinking was, okay, these people died. They must have been sinners. It's God's judgment. You ever hear that before? Like when a tsunami comes, someone comes on, and they always say it's because of homosexuality. God killed all those people because of homosexuality. 9-11, homosexuality. Uh, Jesus said, I tell you, no. No. No, you can't figure it out, and you never will. Death and human suffering have been the single unifying cause of doubt for skeptics and God's people alike. One man said, the greatest cause that makes me want to believe in God is when I see the birth of an infant. And the greatest cause of me not to believe in God is when I see the death of an infant. The story of John the Baptist is amazing. John's birth was announced by an angel. His birth. His ministry was prophesied 400 years earlier in Malachi. He was raised by parents who were of the lineage in the genealogies. They were priests in the temple. They saw angels. They raised them as a Nazarite. Jesus said, here, when you went out to see John, what did you go out to see? A reed moving by the wind? See, John wasn't doubting God here. Don't think he was a man full of doubt. Jesus said he's not a reed moved by the wind. He's not a cat of nine tails or, you know, when you, when you see wind blowing in a field, it blows one way. No, he had convictions of steel, Jesus said. John went down into the Negev, to the wilderness. He cut his teeth eating wild locusts. This man didn't wear nice clothing. You know, I was thinking about this. Some of these, and, and I'm not getting down on anybody, please don't misunderstand, but I see some of these preachers on TV or, or uh, via video stream, and you know they dress nicer than guys I see on TV. And I think, what would you rather have your pastor do, spend most of his time in his study or most of his time in Nordstrom's trying to come up with like the greatest outfit he can, right? That's not John. John, was, John had convictions of steel. This was a man's man. He led one of the greatest movements in history. Almost 50,000 people came out to be baptized by him. He baptized Jesus. He said, I must decrease, he must increase. He leapt in his mother's womb, and Jesus said he was the greatest man ever born of woman. And John doubted. John doubted. And he sends a delegation, are you the one, or do we look for another? Why did John doubt? We have been in prison for 18 months, but I don't think that was really it. I think it was really the report he was getting. Jesus, who had taken his place, is a partier. He's eating with tax collectors, sinners. John's like, we're supposed to overthrow the Roman Empire, not eat with them and drink with them. The religious establishments against him, there's no progress against Rome. And then there was John's message, right? Like the axe is laid to the root of the tree and Jesus is coming and he's got his winnowing fan in his hand and he's going to purge his threshing floor. Like, like John was one of these call fire down from heaven guys. And what's Jesus doing? He's turning water into wine. See, John's doubt is like a lot of our doubt. He didn't doubt God's existence or the Bible or God's, you know, bringing Messiah. He, he didn't doubt God, he doubted God's methods. 
And see, that's the prison of our mind we get into. And think about this. John knew he was never getting out of that prison. I think that's what really got him. If Jesus could perform miracles and if he was really God, surely he would never let John die in that prison. Just like you say, surely God would never let my grandmother die or my dad die or surely God would never let me lose my house or this job. Surely God, surely God. We don't doubt God, we just doubt his methods. Circumstances and suffering allow doubt to creep in. And the fourth reason why we doubt is an enemy. Satan is alive and well on planet Earth. And, and let me tell you something about Satan. You know, people read all these books on demonology and they talk about demon possession and so forth and so on. You know what? You're just always better reading the Bible. You really are. So I read the Bible in Genesis 1 and Satan doesn't possess Adam and Eve. And by the way, believers can't be possessed anyway. He doesn't possess Adam and Eve. You know what he does? He lies to them. And you know why he does? It's more effective. An old British scholar said that we don't bear, you know, we don't bear the, the snake bite on our neck of, of the serpent, but his fiery darts in our heart. That's what we struggle with. We live in a world where Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy, and he uses it through ideology, and he uses, it for, uses all these brilliant men to tell us God is dead and science is the answer, and we're a bunch of idiots, and you know, 24-7 with vitriol and indifference, this comes from these august men at Columbia and Cambridge and Oxford, and they're all smart. Look, let me tell you something about smart men. Did you ever hear the story about three guys on a plane? You know, there's a pilot, there's a boy scout, and the smartest man in, in the world, and the plane's going down, and there's only two parachutes, and the smartest man in the world said, um, you know, I'm going to take this parachute and jump out because I'm the smartest man in the world and the world needs me. And he jumps out. And the captain comes down to the Boy Scout and he goes, look, take the other parachute. I've lived a great life. Your whole life's before you. Just jump out and I'll go down with the plane. Boy Scout tells the captain, he said, hey, Cap, don't worry about it. Smartest man in the world just jumped out wearing my backpack. <laughs> so much for smart people coming against us. Now here's what I'm amazed at. Put all that together and it only gives us about 2% of doubt. Isn't that cool? All that hell can throw at us gives us about 2%, 0.5%. If you ever go through a season of doubt, discouragement, depression, and you all will, let me give you three cures. One, this is what I try and do. Take a trip down memory lane. C.S. Lewis once remarked, we need to be reminded more than we need to be instructed. I actually keep that quote on my computer because God reminds me that I'm the CRO of this church, the chief reminding officer. You know, a lot of times because you guys are smart and some of you have been around for a while, I'm always trying to find something new to tell you or a new way to say something. And God always comes to me and says, you know what, if it's new, it's probably not true. If it's true, it's probably not new. You know, the faith was once delivered to the saints. Uh, one time I picked up a commentary written in the 12th century by a scholar, a Christian scholar in Egypt, 12th century, 1300s. And it was on Exodus. And you know what? It almost matched verbatim a commentary of a guy who wrote one just two years ago. Because the scriptures never change. So um, we need to be reminded of things. You know, I tell my kids, I can give you arguments from science, history, archaeology, the Bible, and tell you it's an airtight, airtight faith. 
It's built on evidence. But I looked him in the eye and I said, guys, you know what? Uh, you guys kind of grew up in the faith. I'm a convert. And uh, man, I was, I was transformed like that. I mean, I, I mean, one day I was serving the devil, and the next day I'm serving God, and the Bible was real. And I got filled with the Spirit, and I spoke in tongues, and, and answered prayer, and uh, angels. And I mean, there was so much that happened to me, no one could ever talk me out of it. Spurgeon one time, who suffered severely with depression, decided to walk the old past one time. So he went back into the village where he was raised in England, and uh, he spent some time in his old house, and he walked the countryside, and he even went back to the church he was raised in, and he sat in the back pew, and as the man was preaching the sermon, he could feel flesh come back on his bones, and he felt alive again, so alive that he went up to the preacher and he said, Sir, I came in here discouraged and disillusioned, and I am so cured right now, I'm going back to London and getting right back in my pulpit. And the pastor had to confess that he didn't have enough time to study that week. Spurgeon was so popular in London, his sermons would be in print in the London Times Monday morning. And these sermons would filter their way out through England. And they finally came to this young pastor. And he had limited time to study that week. And he literally preached sermons, uh, Spurgeon's sermon verbatim that morning. Sermon was, uh, Spurgeon was cured by his own sermon that day. Remarkable. I want to give everybody a warning. If you're in doubt, discouragement, if you're depressed, the enemy wants to keep you out of the Bible. He wants to keep you away from God's people, and he wants to keep you out of church. That's the first gut move for people when they're discouraging. He knows what isolation does. You know what it did to Eve and David and Samson and Solomon. Church is not just the place where we worship and sing and fellowship. It's more than that. It's a collection of people where we look around and say, yeah, God's still on the throne. He's still saving people. He's still working. You know, I might doubt if he's working in my life, but look what he's doing. And, and, and this is the place where, 2 Corinthians, where the God of all comfort comforts us with the comfort by which we've been comforted with. And there's conversations going all over this place about people who are helping people out and what they're going through and prayer warriors and all. This is the last thing you'd ever want to leave. Second thing you need to do when doubt comes over you and waves is to feed your faith and starve your doubts. Now, I'm not saying check your mind at the door, never question God. You can't question everything, Right? Sometimes people come up to me and say, well, Pastor Bob, I've been studying about the Trinity and, you know, I'm not really sure. And I'm like, you know what? Um, we don't need to reestablish the Trinity. It's been around for 2,000 years. There's a body of evidence. You know, I don't think we, you know, like algebra teachers don't try and reinvent algebra every year. They, it, they just know it's true. There was a time where I was reading probably three years, a lot of first source information on evolution and atheism, reading a lot of books. And, uh, you know, I'm a pastor. I, I felt like I was strong enough to do that, and God called me to do it. And then one day God said, that's enough. No more. Shut it down. Because there comes a time where you have to feed your faith. Jesus said the truth will set you free. And by the way, if you're reading the Bible and somebody's talking to you and, and it's leading you down a rabbit trail where you're conflicted and confused, that's not God. 
You're going to wind up like the person in James, tossed to and fro by every doctrine. And you need to say, is this doctrine of God? And does it come from the scriptures? Because here's what I know about the scriptures. They are life-giving. They're different than any other book. This book is alive. Every time I read it, it imparts life to me. So if I'm being led down a rabbit trail where I feel, where I feel like I'm different than everybody else and what everybody else believes isn't true, then I've got a question, is that from God or man? Because Jesus said the truth would set you free, not put you in the bondage, not lead you to doubt. Now, it doesn't mean we can't doubt some things. It doesn't mean we can't question God. Jesus said, would you go out to see a man shaken by the wind? He said, no, John had convictions of steel. And then he says this beatitude, blessed is the one who's not offended because of me. Blessed is the one who's not offended because of me. You know what that means? That means that as great as John was, we have a little bit more advantage than he did. John never saw the crucifixion. He never saw the resurrection. He knew nothing of the ascension. He doesn't know 2,000 years of history, what the gospel has done. Um, He doesn't know these grand testimonies through the years. We are privileged to understand and know all that. Ravi Zacharias said, when you doubt, don't take two steps back, take one step back. It's all right to take a step back. It's all right to have a question or, you know, maybe you struggle with hell. Why would God send anybody to hell? Do a study on hell. Write down some questions. Ask God. Ask him to help you with it. Philip Yancey said, doubt is the skeleton in the the closet of faith. And I know no better way to treat a skeleton than to bring it in the open, expose it for what it is, not something to hide or fear, but a hard structure on which living tissue can grow again. I actually Googled God this week. You ever do that? And uh, how many uh, hits do you think I found? Don't look it up now. (laughs) 1.6 billion. Hits for God. I was pleasantly surprised Wikipedia was number one, and then I was really surprised at number two, uh, does God exist? I thought, oh, here we go. It's going to be some atheist site. It was actually a, a site written by a believer. Six straightforward reasons to believe in God. Everystudent.com, if you want to write it down. Six reasons are the complexity of the planet, universe had a beginning, uniform laws of the universe, DNA, the pursuit of God, and Jesus Christ. It was written by a woman named Marilyn Anderson, a former atheist, who found it continuously difficult um, to, to refute the answered prayer and the quality of life of the Christians she was involved with in her community. So she challenged herself to study Christianity so she could refute these other women. By challenging the beliefs of her friends, Marilyn was amazed to learn the wealth of objective evidence that pointed her to the existence of God. After a year of pursuing questions, she responded to God's offer and asked Christ into her heart and became a Christian. Now I went through her six points, and they are stellar. So every once in a while, take a step back when you're challenged. Read through the evidence again. Look at creation. Read some things about DNA and the, the, the intricacy of the universe. Read the scriptures. Let God wash over your soul. But do you know what the greatest cure for doubt is? The greatest cure for doubt is Jesus. He really is. Jesus said, go and tell John the things you have seen and heard. The blind see 
the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Go tell John. Go tell John, we're not going to overthrow Rome. We're not going to overthrow the social ills now. But we're going to change one life at a time. We're going to put a mustard seed in people's hearts. And communities are going to grow. And churches are going to flourish. And nations are going to change. And John, 2,000 years from now, every tribe and every kindred and every tongue will know the gospel. And it will have been preached in all the world, John. I know you doubt God's methods, John, but this is the way it's going to happen. And there's going to be thousands and millions of testimonies that no one can refute. I was reading a guy this week who said he read the Bible, and then because it didn't mention the Chinese or the early Americans, he threw it out and said there was no God. To which I laughed and said, oh my gosh, there's almost like 250 million Chinese believers today. Jesus has been changing lives one heart at a time. He lived the greatest life there ever was. He was the greatest teacher. He demonstrated the greatest love. He demonstrated the Father. And get this, he gave us a cure for something that beats in every heart, our homesickness. We are longing for home. We know this is in our world. We try and inoculate ourselves and forget there's a fallen world out there. But there's something that beats in our hearts saying, you know what, we were made for something else. We were made for a place where there's no sickness and disease, no rape, no murder, you know, you know, you know, no hatred because of ethnicity or color. And Jesus, before he left, said, I prepared a home for you, that where I am, you may be with me. Can I leave you with this? Every major decision you'll ever make in life will have a degree of uncertainty. We have 10 marriages in the book right now. And if I were to interview all those 10 people, you know, I, they'd all be about 95% sure this is the right one, if they were honest. But no one walks an altar that's not at least 5% unsure. Now, do we change the vows because of that? You know, in 95% of sickness and death and so on and so forth, you know, I'm all in. No, we say 100% because you know what we've learned? That certainty is not what matters most in this life, but faithfulness. I don't have to be 100% certain my wife is the one. I just need to be faithful. And the beautiful thing about our relationship with God, it says when we're faithless, he's faithful. I believe the valley of the shadow of death grows our faith. Job tells me that. Paul tells me that. Peter tells me that. Peter said, you know, Jesus said, are you two all leaving? Peter said, where shall we go? Where are we going? <laughs> what are we going to go to, these raves, the burning man things? Like, like, where are we going? Only you have the words of eternal life. I don't get it all, but I get 98% of it. See, when the times are good, we're worried about our beach houses and vacation. Oh, yeah, God's good. Let's have coffee and tea. But when you go through the valley of the shadow of death, the rubber meets the road, and God becomes real, and you grow. My daughter was in an accident the day before Christmas. She's been suffering and been home with us for three months with the concussion syndromes, can't drive, can't read. It hasn't been the 20-year-olds that have been coming to my house. You know who's been coming to my house? 50-year-olds, 60-year-olds, 70-year-olds. You know why they come? 
Because they've been through the seasons of life. And faith is real. And that's why they come. And they're comforting her with the comfort by which they've been comforted. My wife's been playing this uh, song in the house recently, and I knew God wanted it for this week. So I called Sarah on Thursday and asked her if she could play it, and she graciously agreed. So I want you to sit back, and I want you to relax, and I want this to wash over your soul, and I'll have a few closing comments. <laughs> 